before the reading of God's word this morning, let us pray together. Almighty God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, come. Pour your Holy Spirit upon this place. Open our eyes so that we may see you. Open our ears so that we may truly hear you. Open our hearts so that we may know you. Amen. Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Psalm 82. Hear the word of the Lord. God resides in the great assembly. He gives judgment among the gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. But you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God. Judge the earth. For all the nations are your inheritance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. They would come twice a week. Twice a week they would come hungry. Lining up outside of the building on the sidewalk in the concrete jungle of New York City, they would come twice a week. They would stand in line waiting for the door to be opened so that they could walk up to the second floor of the old Masonic <laughs> temple where they could stand in line again, maybe write their name on a piece of paper and get their food. Twice a week they would come hungry, some carrying their children in their arms or pulling them by their hands, others coming with all of their belongings on their back. But they would come. A week after I graduated from Northwestern College, I packed up all the few belongings that I had, stored them in the basement of my parents' house, and moved to that place. That born and raised Northwest Iowa girl was called to oversee the youth groups that would come to Staten Island, New York for that summer. And get this, my job was to lead those youth groups on tour guides around Manhattan on their day off. That made no sense. I soon found a home, though, in that soup kitchen. Those people who would come twice a week for their food. Once a month, they could come to the food pantry, and if they had AIDS or HIV, they could come more than that to get fresh produce. 
I worked at an organization called Project Hospitality, started in the mid-80s by Brighton Heights Reformed Church, not too far from the ferry terminal on the edge of Staten Island. The ferry terminal is, well, the terminal that the people would wait for the ferry to come so they could go to Manhattan. Business people, tourists go back and forth throughout the day. But the ferry terminal was where the homeless people lived. A shelter in the winter. A shelter in the heat of the summer. And so Brighton Heights Reformed Church saw that and they started to bring sandwiches there to provide food because they were hungry. And pretty soon Project Hospitality became an organization that not only offered food to the homeless and hungry, but services to people who were living with AIDS or HIV. People who had mental illness and were not able to afford to be in a mental institute. Or people who were stuck in the cycle of drug addiction. There was an old man that would come. He, I'm sure, was in his 70s, but poverty ages people. He would come in a tattered old brown suit, and in my mind, he looked like what my grandfather would have looked like. Somehow, he made his way up those stairs, those twice-a-week stairs, shuffling along in his tattered brown shoes. He would eat his food and then go off wherever he would find rest for the day. And there was a little old woman who would always come with a smile on her face, and she would have a silk handkerchief over her head and always carried an umbrella over her shoulder. I suppose it was shelter from the heat. And there was Dominique, who had never left New York City except for that time that he had to serve in the pen. And when he returned back, he found his way to the kitchen, and he came around enough that eventually they let him guard the door because he was the type of guy that could guard the door. Although he had a soft heart and a gentle spirit. And there was Peter, the strong Italian guy who taught me to say mozzarella, not mozzarella. He was so proud that his son was graduating from culinary arts school, and he was the one that everybody listened to at the kitchen, and he taught me how to make steak and cheese sandwiches and mass bombs. And there was Ivan, who drew, drove the delivery truck that went around from bakery to bakery who handed off their dare old goods. He always saved those little old but really good corn muffins for me. And he taught me how to drive in parallel park in New York City. It was one of the best summers of my life, but eventually the summer ended. And I moved back to Iowa, got my belongings, moved to Michigan, started seminary. But a few years later, I went back just to check to see how my friends were at that kitchen. Some of the workers had moved on. Ivan no longer delivered the baked goods, and Dominique never, no longer stood at the door. But that old man in that suit still came twice a week. 
and that little old woman who lived in the park not too far from the kitchen, she was still there too. And I began to ask why. It'd be easy to cast judgment upon them. It's just a service. They're not seeking out to change their life. But why? Why does there need to be a kitchen in the first place? Not too long ago, a friend of mine gave me a cartoon strip. There were two people sitting in the the first area talking to one another, and one person says, I wonder why, I would like to ask God why God allows famine and poverty and injustice when God could do something about it. And the person asked in response, well, why don't you ask? And in response, the person says, because I'm afraid God would ask me the same thing. I think that's what God is asking here in this text. To be honest with you, I have been trying to wrap my brain around this text for months. What does it mean that God is speaking to the gods, lowercase gods? Try to wrap your brain around this. Just go with me on it. In that time when Psalm 82 was written, in the culture around them, the other tribes, the other people that lived around the Israelite culture, they worshipped other gods. The Canaanites, they worshipped Baal. We've heard about Baal before, the god of rain and storm. We know that he's not that strong of a god, though, in other Old Testament stories. The Canaanites also worshipped Baal's wife, Asherah, and they worshipped her through tall poles. And they worshipped another god that they would sacrifice their children to. The Philistines, they had their god that they worshipped. Other tribes had their god that they worshipped. And in this text, the there is this idea that all these gods would gather together. But in Psalm 82, the Lord, capital L Lord, God, capital G God, sits at the head of the table. And God says, why are you allowing the injustice of the world to happen? Why are you allowing the wicked to win? Your one main job, your main cause, is to make sure that the weak are strong, that those who have no voice can speak, and you're failing at it. Why do you allow the injustice of the world to happen? I wonder if God asks us that question, too. After all, we are not lowercase gods. But we live in a very powerful nation. Another way to look at it, I suppose, is if 
the leaders of all the nations today were gathering together, and God said to them, why aren't you doing something about the injustice of the world? Why are you allowing the weak to suffer? Maybe God is saying that to you too. As some of you know, uh, my husband John and I traveled to Ethiopia twice this year. First in January to um, attend a court hearing, a five-minute court hearing um, for the adoption of our son and to see our son Elijah for an hour. That was a long plane trip for that little appointment. But we made a point to travel a little bit around Ethiopia on that trip. And then in our second trip in April, we traveled a little bit as well. I'd like to share with you a little bit of what I saw. We traveled down the road to the southern central part of Ethiopia in Kambada, I suppose a county in the country. And part of our way to Durame, which is our destination point, we stopped at a hospital in Shishinko. It's really not a hospital, I suppose. It's an open-air building, kind of in the shape of an L, and um, doors that, that led out. It was a Saturday morning. And alongside the corridor of the doors that were leading out, people sat and people waited. The doctor, the one doctor for over 300 people, led us down the row and saying, well, this room is the pharmacy, and this room is where we take in patients, and walk in this room. This is the delivery room. We walked in another room, and there was the lab. Small microscopes that maybe worked. And in the last room of that small little hospital clinic were two children, one with malaria and one with pneumonia. Children in Ethiopia most often don't have childhoods. By the time they're age four in the rural areas, they will find themselves herding their goats and shepherding their sheep in the fields. If there's a school nearby, if they're lucky, maybe one of them in the family will get to go to school. Maybe. But there's things to be done at home. There's water to be fetched. In Africa alone, four million hours will be spent each year walking for water. Not just in Ethiopia, but in Africa alone, four million hours will be spent. Most often, it's women and children who will make that trek for water. And the water they get probably isn't clean, probably lead to diarrhea or just some kind of contamination. And their, their body is not weak enough handle it. Those water jugs, these big yellow water jugs that when full weigh about 40 pounds will be carried on the back and so women already have deep back pain 
at a young age from carrying their water. And as they make their trek every day, they also have to endure harassment or sexual assault. On our second trip to Ethiopia, our youngest son, Elijah, was sick. And so we went to a hospital in Addis Ababa, which is the capital city, um, a little bit farther along in the rural development. But as we sat in the nurse's station waiting for them to administer a albuterol nebulizer treatment, the nurse in the nurse's station had to find an outlet that worked. It's 2011, and they couldn't find an outlet that worked in the hospital. Why? Why are there injustices of the world? Why are the weak not made strong? God says very clearly, defend, rescue, deliver, uphold. Education has grown in Ethiopia, and uh, 10 years ago, there was not one free library in all of Ethiopia, and today there are. Schools are being built, and more children are starting to attend. There's been a 500% increase of children who are starting to attend school, and the Ethiopian government wants to make sure that education is available. But there's pressure now. And with the number of students that are starting to attend school, they are running out of pencils. How many pencils do you have in your junk drawer at home? But that's Ethiopia. And I'm just this mom who's passionate about Ethiopia, and I could talk about Ethiopia all day, and you could fall asleep. <coughs> and that's just one part of the world. I haven't begun to talk about Asia and the uh, increase in orphans in that country, or Haiti, that's so close to us. Half of the world lives on $2.50 a day. Think about that next time you drive through the coffee shop. 80% of the world lives on $10 a day. I confess that we've ordered Pizza Ranch pizza twice this week, and you can get a $10 large single-topping pizza for $10. 80% of the world lives on $10. But that's the world. That's not the United States. The U.S. Census Bureau in 2010 said that the poverty level in the United States has written, risen and the annual income for people have dropped. 15.1% of the United States now lives at that poverty level. The poverty level line, there's varying degrees, but let's just say that if you're a family of four, that's two adults and two children, the poverty line is around $22,000 a year. And 15.1% of our country lives at 
that level. My husband's parents live in Jackson County, Kentucky. Um, it's in the heart of Kentucky, and 27% of that county lives at that poverty level. A few years ago, when John's parents were here, um, Jake, my father-in-law, was on the phone working on getting electricity for someone for the very first time. This is in our country. But that's a long ways away. They're um, at the level of 47th poorest county in the United States. The poorest county in the United States is only three and a half hours away from here. Did you know that? Buffalo County in South Dakota. The per capita income of that county is about $5,000 a year, and the annual income of each household is about $12,000 a year. Sioux County didn't make the list of the poorest counties in the country, just to let you know. But 7% of Sioux County lives at the poverty level. That's not 0%. Still, there are people in Sioux County that live at that poverty level. Orange City and Alton combined, about 5% of Orange City and Alton live at the poverty line. Sioux Center, about 7%. Sheldon, about 7%. Why? So God says to these lowercase gods, your heads are in the sand. You are blind. Do you not see? And God says you will die. What sense of hope is there if as I spill out all these statistics, all these numbers, what hope is there? It's easy then to, whatever time we are done here today, to shut that off, to forget, to go home. But God says clearly, defend, uphold, rescue, deliver. And God shows clearly that it is God who reigns. It is God who rules the earth. It is God who cares deeply for God's creation. It is not those lowercase g's, those lowercase gods. It is our God who rules the, the earth, who rules the world, who has a heart for those children in that clinic on that day in April in Ethiopia. Can I hear an amen? Even in the midst of our wondering why, it is God who rules. It is God who reigns. We live in this already but not yet kind of kingdom. We know that God rules. We know that God reigns. But we cannot forget that 
70-year-old-ish man who would come up those stairs twice a week for food. We cannot forget those children who would shepherd their goats and their sheep in the fields. We cannot forget that there are people, our neighbors in this community, who wonder where they will eat their next meal. Friends, if, if any of you have ever felt the injustices of the world, if any of you have ever felt like you have been forgotten, that nobody cares about you, if you have ever really wondered where your next meal will come from? If you have felt like you are weak and nobody cares, I am so sorry. I am so sorry that people have forgotten that people did not seek out the justice of the world. Please know that God reigns in your life and that when it seems as though that nobody is faithful, it is God who is faithful. Friends, if you have the power within your life to defend the weak and the fatherless, to uphold those who cannot uphold themselves, to rescue those who need deep rescuing, and to deliver those who need to be delivered from their sorrow and pain. I urge you to take your heads out of the sand and to do something. I believe that as we begin to seek God's heart, as we begin to seek God's heart for the justice of the world, that our hearts begin to change. Three years ago, when we went to Ethiopia to bring our first son home, all I wanted was a child. Yeah, I had read books about Ethiopia, but I had no idea what God had in store for my heart. And I pray for you that you would pray that God would open your eyes to see the injustices of the world so that the weak would be made strong. Wouldn't it be a marvelous thing if all 
mouths were filled with food. Think about it. This Thanksgiving week when we gather around our shrine of turkey. Wouldn't it be a marvelous thing if no one, no one in all the earth had to worry where their next meal would come and they wouldn't have to come twice a week or any day. Wouldn't it be a marvelous thing if everybody had education and not just one child in the family had to go, but everybody could go? Wouldn't it be a marvelous thing if we didn't have to walk and walk and walk for water that in the end might kill you? We pray at what the end of the psalm prays. Rise up, O God, rise up. For the inheritance of the world is in your hands. Or as the song goes, you've got the whole world in your hands, God. And we pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. Not someday. Not a few years from now. But today. Let us pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. May your kingdom come. May your will be done in those faces and those names and those people that we know. Help us, O oh God, to defend, to rescue, to deliver, to uphold. Amen.